Hello everyone, you're listening to Bible Coffee Talk with Allie Benfield, and I'm so happy you're tuning in. I hope you're well and living your best life for Jesus Christ. On my podcast, we talk about subjects that some, if not most of us, are either going through, dealing with, or just want more information about. But we apply the Bible and the love for our Savior Jesus Christ, hoping that it will enrich our lives and help us as we walk righteously in obedience with the Holy Spirit. And we do it while enjoying a hot cup of coffee together. Because after all, this is a fellowship between friends. Am I right? So grab your coffee and your Bible, and let's learn more about Jesus Christ. Sound good? Awesome. So let's dive in. What's up, everybody? Thank you for joining me today on Bible Coffee Talk with me, Allie Benfield. I'm so glad you're joining me. Today I'm drinking a, what is this? It's a caramel drizzle coffee, and I can't tell if I like it. I mean, if I did like it, I'd have been done the first cup and already on the second one. And I've only had a couple sips out of this. I don't know. I don't know if I like it. I'm undecided. All right. So today's episode, the name sounds funny, but (laughs) when you hear what the message is, you're going to be like, wow. Yep. Okay. I get it. The episode is (laughs) is called Nuggets from the Lord. (laughs) I know, but just wait, this is going to be so good. I I tell you. But before we continue, I need to surrender this entire podcast over to the Lord for his blessing and approval. So let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I humbly kneel at your feet and ask you to reveal your word to our hearts, to let us feel your closeness as we learn about you and what an awesome God you are. Lord, I love you. I love all of you. I love that even in your sovereignty, You give us these little beautiful glimpses of who you are. And if we look hard enough, we'll see you in the most humongous truths. So as we gather in your name, we're confident that you're here with us. Because your word says that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are also. Lord, I want to please you. So I ask you to join us and to let every word out of my mouth be pleasing to your ears. I ask you for these things and I thank you for these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. When I said that some truths were going to be revealed, get ready, because I'm about to show you what God revealed to me. So I hope you're comfy. I hope you have a hot cup of coffee and your Bible, because on my podcast, we read, use, and apply the Bible to everything. It's my go-to and my fact checker. I read from the King James Version Bible because it's the least translated Bible out there. However, on occasion, on occasion... I will read from the NIV Bible if a verse is too tricky or um, to understand or translate. Okay, so I just want to start off by saying that the Bible was written for us to learn more about who the Lord is. I've heard a lot of people say that the Bible is too hard to read. I've heard other people say that it's too symbolic and because of that it keeps them from reading it. And to all that, I say, that's garbage. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry it is. If you had a heart for Jesus... If you truly wanted to know him, then you'd read it and you'd find a way to read it. And you'd ask the Holy Spirit to come to you, to help you, to give you what you need. He would reveal his truth to you. And by reading it more and more, then more and more would be given and revealed to you. I love my Bible. I use it every day. I cannot imagine a day in my life without it. And then you have people who say that they have the app on their phones. And yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
that's good, but I don't like that as much. I agree that those apps are helpful, but there's something about grabbing hold of the written word of God and just clinging it to you in times of trouble or urgency. And you just can't get that same effect by grabbing your phone and holding it against you. You can't. I've also, um, I have a hard time trusting things from the internet. I mean, Satan has total power over this evil world. And since he's the father of lies and has corrupted schools and government, I mean, how hard would it be for him to alter words, to change things on an app to meet his agenda? I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard since there's billion dollar companies that are trying to, you know, shove space down our throat. Anyways, <laughs> don't go down that rabbit hole. Okay. So with that being said, I am totally throwing myself into this one. And can I just say that as I typed this out today, I had my headphones on and I sat listening to instrumental music. For the first part, my eyes were closed and my fingers were just skipping over the keyboard. I mean, the Holy Spirit was like in my hands. First thing I want to share with you is how the Lord Jesus uses the small things that many would overlook, but have these massive significant meanings. If you were to delve into the small words that the Bible uses, for example, let me just take the crucifixion of our Lord. When the Jews had him crucified, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man, asked for Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea was a Bible figure who played an important role in the burial of Jesus Christ. His account could be found in each of the four Gospels. Um, where was it? It was Matthew 27, verse 57 and 60. Mark 15, verse 42 to 46. Luke 23, 50 through 53. And John 19, 38 through 42. He is called Joseph of Arimathea because he came from a Judean town of Arimathea. And it says that in Luke 23, verse 51, and to distinguish him from other Josephs of the Bible. So that's where they had named him Arimathea. Now, how relevant is this? Because it was in, um, because it was um, in the tomb that Jesus was laid in, it was his tomb. Well, there's not much information in the Bible about Joseph of Arimathea. There are certainly things we can learn from the text. In Luke 23, verse 50, we learn that Joseph was actually a part of the council, or Sanhedrin, a group of Jewish, Jewish religious leaders who called for Jewish, sorry, a group of Jewish religious leaders who called for Jesus' crucifixion. However, as we read on to verse 51, we see that Joseph was opposed to the council's decision to crucify. It was in fact, I mean, he was a secret follower of Jesus, and he mentions that in Mark 15, verse 43. Joseph was a wealthy man, although the source of his wealth was unknown. In addition, the Bible refers to Joseph as a good and upright man. After Jesus' death on the cross, Joseph, at great risk to himself and his reputation, went to the Roman governor, Pilate, and requested Jesus' body. Nicodemus, the Pharisee who had visited Jesus the night um, at night to question him about God's kingdom, accompanied Joseph. The two men were granted custody of Jesus' body, and they immediately began to prepare the body for burial. Following, Jesus, Jews, <laughs> following Jewish custom, they wrapped the body in strips of linen mixed with myrrh and aloe, which were kind of hard to get a hold of. So it must have been uh, Joseph, because it doesn't say this, but I'm just, this is where I kind of step out, because it's an expensive herb. Both these two um, herbs were very, very expensive. So if... Joseph is, is wealthy, it stands to reason that he would have been the one to have purchased these things. However, 
It was the day of preparation, the sixth day of the week, just before the Jewish Sabbath, and it was late in the day. So Joseph and Nicodemus had to hurry to place Jesus in Joseph's own tomb, located in a garden near the place of Jesus' crucifixion. Okay, so, whew, <laughs> work through me, Holy Spirit. Okay, so follow me here, because this is where it gets good. This is where the Lord reveals big things in, in a little way, and it's probably... It's probably going to knock your socks off. So if you don't know about it, get ready. Ready? Okay. Unbeknownst to Joseph and Nicodemus, their choice to put Jesus in Joseph's tomb fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy spoken hundreds of years before Jesus' death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. It says that in Isaiah 53, verse 9. This is one of the many prophecies that have confirmed Jesus' identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. I know. Kaboom! <laughs> I know. But wait, there's more. So the Lord is huge with customs, and we'll get into that a little bit, so put a pin in that. Because the Lord loves customs, there were things he did in his life that those in the time of his time would know and understand. They could identify with it because it was just an everyday thing. However, for the remainder of the world, decades, centuries, millennia later, they wouldn't really know this, the same customs of Galileans, of Judeans, of... They just wouldn't. That was just an unheard of custom from way, 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 way way back then. Now, when the Lord is placed in the tomb and prepared for burial, Joseph and Nicodemus did one thing that stood out. The Bible mentions it in such a casual way that it goes overlooked. Ready for it? Okay. When the Lord was resurrected, he pushed the burial linens off himself, but before leaving the tomb, he did something that was massive. It had just such amazing significance. The face covering or the napkin used to cover his face he folded it. Now, I'm sure you've seen the story going around on the internet with Easter coming up and with the resurrection of Jesus. I figured I would share this story. I saw this on Facebook and I'm going to share it with you, the story and some research that I've done on this. The story's been around since 2007, I think I saw. Now, I am almost sure that some of this story has changed in some ways over the years. There might be some differences or variations of the story. So the napkin goes like this. Whew, okay. It was a Jewish custom in relation between master and slave that the dinner table was prepared with a cloth and it was sitting right next to the utensils. After dinner, if the master was finished with his meal, he would wipe his hands and face and then crumple the napkin or the cloth and leave it near the plate. This was a signal to the slave that the master was finished and he had left the dining area. However, if he folded the napkin and left it a bit further away from the plate, it indicated that he would re be returning to finish his meal and not to touch anything. He would be back. The significance of the folded napkin is a reminder of the beautiful detail from the resurrection. Okay. The significance of the napkin that wrapped that was wrapped around our Lord's head in the tomb. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre and saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin that had been about his head not laying with the other linen cloths, but apart, folded into one place. Okay, so, we see that Joseph and Nicodemus bound Jesus in burial linens. But do you know what is so extraordinary about this story? 
is that the folded napkin or linen was not a tradition back in Jesus' day. Hold on, it gets better because I've gotten chills even as I tell you this. It wasn't. That was a gesture he made for us. Now, whoo, thank you, Jesus, I'm getting like chills. In our day, many Bible commentators and authors have used this creative illustration to make specific application to the resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. The truth is that table napkins, such as we use today, were not used in Jesus' day. Jews would do an after-meal hand-washing as part of the eating ritual. Washing of the hands before a meal was mandatory according to Rabnik injunction. It was after washing their hands. People, what did they do to dry them? They had cloths, perhaps, their, their, their robes, probably. Apparently, there is no early Rabnik source that discusses how the hands were dried after washing them. The folding of the napkin is a sign that, an af that a dinner guest after a meal would be folding them. And that custom was a European custom long after Jesus had died. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing the significance now? But it appears this custom was unknown in the land of Israel at the time of Jesus. Whew. Okay. All throughout the Bible, the Lord follows with the traditions and customs of his time. But this is the one little detail he did for us now in our time. You might have heard this story before, and you might have read or heard about the significance of the napkin, meaning during his return. However, that little detail, <laughs> that little detail was not for those back in his day. And that's probably why it was just overwritten, you know, no, uh, um, not overwritten. It was um, not written about. Um, as significant. It wasn't like this big thing. And it was kind of like just briefly mentioned. The Lord does nothing by mistake. Everything, everything he does and says is meaningful and powerful. Do you see the Bible is awesome. It's an awesome tool to learn everything you need to know. Everything you need to know. John 20 verse 4 through 7 says, so they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet he, he, he went not in. <laughs> Sorry. Um, then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin. It was about his head. It was about his head, not lying with the other linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. When you see, um, when you see that whole whoop-de-doo the internet has made out of this truth, you, you see all that the Lord was hoping we'd learn. That Joseph of Arimathea, giving his family's tomb, directly fell in line with scripture. And then the napkin that was overlooked by those back in the day of Jesus' time, but has such remarkable meaning for us today. Whew, I know. <laughs> and the thing is that today I was feeling kind of blah. I, and I kind of always do after um, the day after the Lord's been crucified. So I prayed and asked the spirit to bring me his truth. And whenever you ask for more of him with humbleness and genuine love, he will fill us. <laughs> He'll fill us with more. And while this truth was revealed to me, something else was laid on my heart. 
I used to take figure skating lessons as well as gymnastics when I was younger. I would spend many hours training on the ice, spinning and learning jumps, as well as hours at the gym trying to keep limber because of figure skating. I was never good at the, the bar. I was never good at, um, you know, on the floor doing flips. <laughs> I was good on the balance beam. I love the balance beam. And I was good in a couple of other areas, but I didn't like gymnastics. I'd injured myself and I didn't want to continue. So basically I would just stand around and watch and I'd wait for my turn on the beam. What I noticed both on the ice and in the gym was the feet of the girls. These girls needed uh, very strong ankle flexibility and strength to give them the power to perform and to polish the routines. Gymnasts needed strong feet for their tumbling and dance elements on the floor and on the beam, and the girls on the ice needed the use of their feet to push off to make hard landings for spinning to look effortless. Feet aren't just useful, and gymnasts and figure skaters rely on their feet to convey not only power, but also grace and beauty. For years, I have always been fascinated and intrigued about feet washing in the Bible. I don't know why, but I'll tell you because this is what I learned today. <laughs> okay. I made a post a while back on my fake book account sharing a painting of Mary Magdalene washing the feet of Jesus. It's hands down one of my absolute favorite paintings, and I'll tell you why. Because she was a sinner, and on her hands and knees, she used her hair to wash our Savior's feet. Now, the Bible says in Luke 7, verse 38, And stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Okay. However, Mary's hair has significance. It does. And I'll get into it. Proverbs 16, verse 31 says, The hoary head of a crown of glory, if it be found in the way of righteousness. I know. That sounded really weird, but it that, that's what it says in the Bible, Proverbs 16, verse 31, the hoary head, head, the hoary head. Now, if you were to look up what hoary means, it doesn't mean what you think or what you think it sounds like. Having gray or white hair of advanced age. Okay. That's what it means. So forget that part. I just needed to clarify what I was saying. So here's Mary. She's washing her Lord's feet with her crown of glory because back in Proverbs 16 verse 31 it says her head is a crown of glory because of her head her hair okay so back then and even now even uh, Eastern country women do not have their hair flying loose it's bound for only her husband to see so for her to use her hair for Mary to use her hair her crown of glory this very private part of herself that is covered to wash his feet this is huge because it displays her incredible love that she would use something so prized to wash something so filthy is astounding for Mary to get down on her knees and put her face in the dirt to kiss his feet is also profoundly moving. If you really think about it, because you don't put your face down by the dirt and you don't put your, your mouth by someone's feet. You don't put your hair that's prized around anything that's filthy. And here she did all three. She uses her hair, her prized hair, to wash the filthiness away. And to me, that's absolutely beautiful. Now, keeping with the whole feet thing, let's move forward to one of the scriptures that has also intrigued me, John 13, which portrays the scene in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This story presents the Last Supper, 
Um, it, the focus of Monday, Thursday worship, traditional churches today will include foot washing as a ritual in the Monday, Thursday lithography. Okay. Admittedly, <laughs> I've heard some churches that still carry this tradition out and I find this service to be a bit over the top. I would totally be like Peter resisting anyone to wash my feet. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> However, Jesus shows no squeamishness. He performs this ceremonial washing of his disciples' feet with a solemn purpose. Jesus' determination made me want to explore the scripture more deeply because for me, when I get on a tangent, when something's there, like I just have to follow it and see it through. And that's what the Holy Spirit's put on my heart with this. Let me tell you. Okay, so in the Old Testament, priests performed and received ceremonial foot washings before they entered the temple for worship. Foot washing was a serious matter. A, ba a basin for foot washing would have been placed between the tent of the meeting and the altar. So Aaron and his sons could wash before entering the tent of meeting. Okay, so Exodus 30, uh, verse 20, it says, Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Okay, so disregarding the ritual cleansing, that actually meant that you would die. Yeah, if you were a priest, you were killed. Pretty serious stuff. In John 13, verse 4 and 5, it says, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, so here we see that Jesus placed the basin between the disciples and the altar, which represents his cross. Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus makes holy all who come to the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ's atoning work on the cross, the disciples and all believers are made holy and righteous before God and then set apart for service in his body, the church, the holy priesthood of believers. Jesus washes his disciples' feet to purify and cleanse them for their service to God. John 13 verse 8 says, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Jesus anoints the disciples for their new role as priests in the te new temple that God will raise up. Jesus ordains them so that they can serve his church when he leaves this world to return to the Father. Through the act of purification, Jesus imparts his holiness to his disciples so that they will be set apart from the world, even though they will remain in the world. I know. Hold on. Jesus teaches his disciples that his holiness, his salvation, and his purity will all come through him and his suffering. Whew. Okay. Through this simple act of foot washing, Jesus demonstrates to his disciples his eternal role as God's high priest and mediator, and their part in the priesthood. Even though he must suffer and die, the disciples can know by faith to be certain that he will never leave them nor forsake them. Scripture says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submissions. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from that what he had suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And were designated by God to be high priests in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, that was a big mouthful. I can't believe I actually got that right because I'd been practicing <laughs> for a little bit. Okay, hold on. Hebrews 5 verse 7 uh, through Hebrews chapter 5, 7 through 10 says, he is the high priest of heaven, and through the foot washing, he has ordained his disciples to be priests of the church in the world. He will offer prayers on their behalf. He always lives to intercede for them. I mean, that is just 
powerful. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, And he will empower them through the Holy Spirit to perform their priestly duties to the glory of God. Through the anointing work of the cross, the sinner is saved, and the church increased in the world. The Holy Spirit draws the sinner to the altar, Christ's cross, and his heart is cleansed and purified through the sacrifice of God's perfect lamb. The sinner is washed in the waters of baptism. The old creature is crucified with Christ, and the new man is regenerated by the living waters of the word and rededicated to God's service through the power of the Holy Spirit. Each saved sinner is called to the church to be a priest in the church in the kingdom of priests. Exodus 9, um, 19, verse 6. And part of God's holy nation on earth, such as a new believer, discards the clothing of the old man, and the new priest receives the sacrament garments of righteousness, godliness, holiness through Christ. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. I mean, as I studied this and found all these new truths, I was like, <laughs> I mean, that's what it was like. It was like, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Okay. Hang on. All priests clothe themselves in sacred garments when ministering before God and serving man. According to Exodus chapter 28 verse 4, it says, these garments include a breastpiece, an elf hod, a robe, a woven tu a tunic, a turban, and a sash. In Ephesians chapter 6 uh, verse 16 through 17, it tells us, now clothed in Christ, the priests of his church received a breastplate of truth, an ephod of salvation, a robe of righteousness, a woven tunic of peace, a turban of redemption, and a sash of faith. Okay. They wear priestly vestments while making sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God and offering prayers and petitions to God as well. They must wear these things whenever they proclaim the gospel of Christ so that men will know that they serve God and God sent them. Um, and that, they, and that God sent his only begotten son into the world to love the world and to save the world through him. These garments are to be worn whenever and wherever God calls the church to minister to the world until the day of her triumph. On that day, the church will remove the priestly garments of service and wear the radiant remnant of the resurrection. Jesus, the high priest of God, condescendeth to earth to ordain and to consecrate his disciples to be the church in the world. When the members the priests of the of Christ gather for worship they celebrate the washing with water in the word giving thanks for the atonement of Christ's holy work on the cross and look forward to the day of triumph and resurrection to say that my mind's been blown a massive amount of times today is a ginormous understatement i mean it was like incredible the bible tells us through the little things about the big things that are most often overlooked and are typically kind of ignored and that makes me sad. And what do they say? Good things come in small packages. And here <laughs> we can see through these illustrations that, yeah, that's really, really true. I hope this podcast has blessed you. And I pray that the Lord's word has been seared on your heart and your mind. I encourage you to read your Bible, to come to know who Jesus was and still is because he's never changing. He loves you. He wants you to be with him, with those that are caught up in the sky. If you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to, uh, to pray with someone, to help someone uh, walk with you, to, to lead you to Jesus Christ, please look for me on Facebook. My account is open. Just look for Allie Benfield, and I would be delighted to hear from you. Thank you for joining me, guys. Have a great day. Stay encouraged. Joshua 1 verse 9. Look it up. It's a great verse. Bye for now, guys.
guys, I just wanted to thank you for taking this time with me today to fellowship and learn more about our wonderful Heavenly Father, His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, and the incredible Holy Spirit as we apply the Bible to our lives and our faith. I hope that what you heard and learned today has touched your heart and is tended to and ministered by the Holy Spirit. I pray that He fills you with His discernmentship and understanding so that the words of the Bible imprint on your heart with meaning and worth. The Lord Jesus Christ is returning soon, and when He does, I pray that you're among those that are caught up in the sky to meet Him so that you can join in the wedding banquet called the Feast of the Lamb. Until we're together again fellowshipping over coffee, <laughs> This is Ali Benfield signing off. Bye for now, guys.